Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem, Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Welcome. We are doing a Skype broadcast today, myself from uh, Napier Linksfield Hospital, and we are very excited to have Dr. India Butler with our specialist geriatrician live from her rooms at uh, Donald Gordon at uh, MediClinic, but it's Donald Gordon MediClinic. Uh, thank you. We know your time is very, very precious, and uh, there's a six-month waiting list for your room, so I don't know how we managed to get in for the for the show so quickly. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Good. Thank you so much. So um, amongst other things, we're going to be speaking mainly about COVID in the elderly. But um, a few questions just about general geriatrics, if you don't mind, before we get on to that. I think a lot of people are confused why you need um, a specialist doctor to treat old people, to treat uh, geriatrics. You know, I suppose that people, we've had pediatricians for a long, long time but it's assumed that the elderly are similar to normal adults physiologically and anatomically. Do you want to maybe give a, just a brief introduction to who you are and what you do and why we need geriatricians? Sure. So geriatrics, I suppose, is kind of like a more of a generalist. I think the, one of the ways that we treat medicine this you know, at this time is that it's in a very siloed way. You know, you, you kind of see a heart specialist for your heart and an endocrine specialist for your diabetes. And often, especially in older people with multiple illnesses, nobody really takes a broad overview and puts it all together. You know, and, and you may have certain medications that are uh, contradicting or competing with each other. And, you know, it's it's often good to put everything together and as well as putting the person into context. So we feel very pr- privileged to be able to see our patients as not just their illnesses and a list of their problems and not just a single organ, but the whole picture as well as who they are, you know, what their personal history is, um, what kind of their beliefs and their values are, and all of that influences their treatment and their care. So um, that's a little bit with, you know, how we approach things. Um, you don't need a geriatrician. I would say you probably need a good GP before you need a geriatrician. But certain elderly patients who maybe are more complex or patients with specific illnesses that we specialize in, like dementia, um, uh, falling, uh, the so-called geriatric syndromes, um, which is a kind of concept that we like to use where instead of having a disease model, so for example, uh, if a mosquito bites you and you get malaria and then you treat malaria, so we don't really deal with those type of diseases. I wish it was that simple. Uh, we have a kind of syndrome. So you might come to us with falls and there may be 10 or 11 different inputs into the falls down to the architecture of your house, uh, a, a, a small sausage dog that you regularly trip over, a leg length discrepancy, loss of feeling in your feet, maybe the wrong medication that's making you dizzy. Uh, maybe your your vision is too good or too bad, um, those type of things. And we try and chip away at, at things that we can reverse and hope that the final common pathway, which is, uh, you know, of, of all these inputs is to improve falls. 
So it's just a different way of thinking. Um, yeah. And taking it away from the kind of one, one disease, one doctor sort of model. And why would you say that uh, the geriatric patient is different to a younger patient, physiologically different? Sure. So there are some, um, you know, differences as we age certain things. For example, you know, we might touch on it if we talk about COVID, but older patients tend to not get high fevers. So, you know, if you don't know that, you might, you know, miss, miss our patients presenting with COVID because you're expecting them to have a fever because that's what the kind of WHO says everybody gets. Um, you know, whereas certain things are in a narrower range, there's certain changes as you age that you have to be knowledgeable about when um, prescribing medications. And, and there's also a concept of frailty, which is just that your reserve is a little bit depleted. So you don't have the ability to weather illnesses as well as younger people do. And that sometimes means that you actually present earlier with symptoms and feeling unwell and before your doctors can pick up any signs because you've come in so early because your reserves are not there. So sometimes it can be very challenging. You can have patients with pneumonia that are not coughing, don't have a fever, aren't short of breath, and you've got to pick up subtle signs. Often also people come in with symptoms that are just related to functional decline. So, you know, we also talk about the weak link. So if, for example, perhaps you've got dementia, um, your weak link is your brain. So an illness anywhere in your body, it can be a blood infection or maybe you've broken your hip or maybe you've got pneumonia, would present with confusion. And looking in the brain is not always the right place to look if you don't look elsewhere. So those subtle things, um, you know, in, in older patients, certain changes in their physiology and the way they present, uh, it gives us a little bit of, you know, the art of geriatrics that, that you know, that we, 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 try and, we try and sort of teach our GPs that we train and our registrars about. That's amazing. You put it put it so nicely. So what age um, do you, people get defined or put into the category of being a geriatric? Sure, I get asked this a lot. I think people want to know. If, <laughs> so one of the big concepts of geriatrics is that age is not actually that important. So I, I'm sure everybody knows, you know, you've got 85-year-olds that are in better shape than some 65-year-olds. We call that the heterogeneity of health. So you can have, you know, older age but in, be in good health and perhaps be frailer and at, at a younger age, whereas kind of all newborn babies are, are quite similar to each other. By the time you start getting towards your autumn years, you know, the, the differences in people are, are very, diff, you know, are, are very stark. So officially, you know, they say 65 is one definition. However, in arbitrary. Africa... It's quite arbitrary. In Africa, we use sometimes 55 because it seems like, um, you know, maybe people are aged differently here, especially with chronic illnesses like HIV, which can, you know, accelerate aging. Um, in in my rooms, we kind of use 75, um, unless we're fully booked, in which case we make it 95 for that week. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, but, but there are some patients that need to see us at a younger age. Perhaps they've got an earlier onset dementia or maybe they're very medically complex. But usually 75 and above would be what, what we kind of use. But it's not based on anything in particular. Um, you know, you could also use the age of 60, which is the pension, age of getting a pension. That's what the government says, you know. So who knows? It's, it's so not are, very clear. So mm. what are we using? What age are we uni- using to define now with regards to COVID and, and the elderly? I know I've seen 60 being put a lot out there, 65, 70. Yeah, I've seen 60 a lot as well. Um, but like I say, 
you know, I think everybody over 60 is kind of very, very worried about themselves, but you know, there's 60 year olds and then there's 60 year olds. So there's extremely yeah. well 60 year olds that 40. you could physio, exactly, you could physiologically classify as being, you know, 40, 40 years old and there's 40 year olds that could be 70 years old. So, you know, this age is, is a little bit of an arbitrary thing. And then I think also obviously controversially using age as a cutoff for, you know, ventilators and things like that is also a little bit um, you know, probably not correct in terms of geriatrics. You should rather use a functional uh, assessment of the patient and and know who the patient is and what what they were like and what their baseline is like is something more useful to dictate outcomes. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break and then we'll be back speaking maybe more about uh, COVID in the elderly. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. We are interviewing via Skype today, Dr. India Butler, specialist geriatrician at the Bitstone Gordon Medical Center. We are speaking about geriatrics or the elderly and uh, COVID. Um, before we get onto that, make a difference during COVID-19 panic pandemic with Discam. Your Discam benefit points can go towards supporting the independent solidarity fund set up by the president. Discam is matching rand for rand all point donations and will kick start it up with an upfront 2 million rand. Money's raised will go towards saving lives of the needy and people in need. Donate now by converting your Discam points via the Discam app or via the website. Together we are stronger. Together we can overcome the pandemic. Discam pharmacists who care. Dr. Butler, thanks again for being with us. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you... What do you think about, we just heard on the advert about uh, the flu vaccine. Are you recommending that uh, your patients have the flu vaccine and um, yeah. what age? I know uh, most people sure. over 60 should have it. What do you say? Yeah, so I like what you did there, the COVID panic. I think that probably <laughs> sums it up. Um, bit of a Freudian slip. So yeah. look, the flu vaccine I've been recommending for years for all of my patients. Um, you know, it's it's not new that it's certainly beneficial. It has been shown not only to prevent flu, but also to prevent complications of other illnesses. So, for example, the flu vaccine can prevent decompensated diabetes. It prevents heart attacks. It prevents all-cause mortality, which not a lot of other vaccines can lay claim to. So this is when they do research showing that some, um, you know, in, in patients who've had it, there's, you know, they compare obviously to controls and they see uh, reduced rates of these things. Um so the other thing about the flu vaccine is it's also cumulative. So the more you've had in your life, you know, the, the more effects you have. So if you've been having the flu vaccine every year since the age of 50 and you're now 80, then, you know, don't don't worry too much if you run out of stock this year, which is the main problem. Um, I hope they're getting more in. Obviously, if you can get hold of it, then, then still go for it, you know, whereas I think a lot of people have come to the flu vaccine this year for the first time, which is uh, which is wonderful, and long may it continue. Um, I uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, people have a lot to say. A lot of my patients say that you know they got the vaccine and then they still got the flu, and that often is a little bit of confusion with what the flu is versus a normal cold, upper respiratory tract infection. So it doesn't prevent against those. Um, the other thing is the flu vaccine is never perfect, so they make it six months before the flu season, so it's based on a best guess as to which strains will be the most prevalent. And there is a good chance that strains can still mutate in the six months that you know it takes to, to actually grow the vaccine. Um, but 
some years are a better match than others. But still, it is something you can do, and it certainly is beneficial to, to health. Uh, there's a new quadrivalent vaccine that's come out now in South Africa this year, which has got four strains as opposed to the three strains. I don't know how the stock is at the moment. Certainly, if you can't get the quadrivalent, absolutely go for the trivalent. It's still beneficial. And at the moment, I'm not sure if they're getting in another shipment. I do hope so, because most of the places I've checked with have been out of stock, but perhaps this Kim is... Got some more information. Yeah, for us, so they have. I, I do know that they have. I do know. So also, we've been mm. looking for ourselves and for our yes. patients that they have. Um, a new shipment has come in, as far as I know. Certain Brilliant. stores, so just take your local yes. pharmacy. So why we, why are we pushing it so much um, this year with regard to COVID? What's the relationship between them? Do we not want to confuse the two diseases? Do we not want to burden mm. the hospitals with? Um, yeah. What's so, the rationale between pushing it so much this year? I think all of those things. So obviously you don't want to get flu and COVID. That sounds like a double whammy. Um, you know, if you've had the flu vaccine and you get symptoms, possibly you'll think it's less likely flu and, and possibly even, you know, could be COVID or, or any number of the other winter viruses that go around. Um, of course, if we can prevent heart attacks and complications of diabetes and influenza patients coming into hospital, then we've got more beds for for, you know, the other, um, the COVID panic, as you called it, um, pandemic. So, so I think all of those reasons, uh, you know, just to know that, I mean, even with COVID, which is a coronavirus, I mean, a coronavirus, as we know, they've been around a long time, is usually causing a common cold. So there's a good chance that, you know, everybody's had a coronavirus, just not necessarily the coronavirus. Um, you know, so the difference between it obviously is, as soon as um, doctors that monitor epidemics see that a virus crosses over from affecting the upper respiratory tract, just cold symptoms, and starts to affect the lungs, that's when the alarm bells ring that it could be a serious infection for humans. So that was, you know, SARS and MERS are the other coronaviruses that we've all heard of that are severe. But there's a whole lot of coronaviruses floating around that just cause mild symptoms such as colds that we, you know, that we've been infected with kind of year after year. So it's, it's viruses that cross over into the lower respiratory tract that cause, cause a red flag in terms of these type of, of epidemics. Okay. So why, why are the elderly more susceptible? Why to uh, coronavirus or why do they do worse with coronavirus? Or what is the reason that we're being so careful about you know, locking down old age homes and having um, people over 60 sure. stay home. Sure. So, I, you know, I think everybody is susceptible to to catching um, this coronavirus. So COVID-19 is the illness and the name of the virus is, is SARS-CoV-2 because there was a SARS-CoV-1, which was SARS. Um, and anybody can catch it. I think the, the concern with older patients is that they are just more susceptible to complications and obviously have a, a higher death rate. And that's the reason why we must protect them, you know, as society as best we can because they are vulnerable. That said, they're picking up other vulnerable populations. So, I mean, obesity seems to be a risk factor for more severe disease. In the UK and the US, they found in immigrant populations, but that's most likely linked more to socioeconomic status than actual race. Um, people with certain medical comorbidities, so they've listed cardiovascular, diabetes, hypertension, chronic lung disease, uh, patients with cancer and malignancies, chronic renal failure, and smokers are also at higher risk. But, you know, you've got to consider these diseases as they are affecting the individual. So, for example, a diabetic can be a 
diet controlled diabetic who's not on any medication is totally well. And that's obviously a low risk to a very brittle, complicated, long standing, possibly type one diabetic who's had, you know, diabetes for a long time and will have more effects on their immune system than somebody with milder disease. So, you know, if, if you look after your chronic illnesses and have them well controlled, then you, you're definitely doing something in the right direction to try and avoid complications, but still, do consider yourself, um, you know, more vulnerable and, and take more precautions. Tell me, what happens to the immune system in the elderly? Um, does it get worse or better with age? Um, is, it, uh, is the reason why they're more susceptible because they have a low immune system or is it the actual immune response to the virus that uh, causes the problem? Saying a, a person who, an elderly person who has no other comorbidities, sure. um, how do they stand? Yeah, so look, I mean, there is a concept of the aging of the immune system, which we call immunosenescence, and that's an incredibly complicated process that, um, you know, you really need like a PhD in immunology to totally understand completely. But just to know that um, aging and any any kind of chronic inflammation, which is where those comorbidities come in, so patients with vascular disease, which is sort of diabetes and hypertension and chronic illness, have changes in their immune system um, related to chronic inflammation that, that make you more susceptible to certain things. However, some parts of the immune system, so autoimmunity can also go up, so some parts become more activated. So it's not a sort of global thing, but just generally the immune system becomes a little bit dysfunctional as you age, and that's that's obviously considered a risk. Uh, there is this hyperimmune response, which we're seeing mostly in younger people, which is, as you mentioned there, when the disease um, is one thing, but it's actually the immune response to the disease which is, is causing the damage. And that's typically seen more in younger patients as far as I know, but I think there's not a lot of, you know, science. We're all kind of trying to keep up with this, and it changes every day. Um, and that's kind of in children that Kawasaki type of syndrome and in in, in typically um, men in the younger age groups that get that type of immune response that they're using immune suppressants to, to treat. Those are typically ICU patients, very, very sick. So your immune system is, is, has a complicated relationship with this illness. It can be that you have not enough immunity and it can be actually that you have too much immunity. But generally in older patients, we consider aging as a cause of a degree of immunosuppression or immune dysfunction, shall we say. Okay, so what would be the, the typical course of illness? Uh, sorry, before we get on to that, we're going to take another short break and then we'll speak about um, the course of the illness. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. You're speaking to Dr. Dean Gerson, your host. We're speaking to Dr. India Butler, specialist geriatrician, the Vitsdonald Gordon Medical Center. We're speaking about the elderly and COVID and the elderly. Uh, Dr. Butler, so what would be the normal course of disease in a, a healthy 75-year-old patient? What would they usually feel and um, how would things transpire? Yeah, sure, Dean. So, I, I mean, I don't know if I really know the answer to that. Um, firstly, you know, at the moment in Gauteng, we haven't had our surge. It's coming later in the year for us. So, you know, our experience within our population is not that much. Um in, in certainly, you know, the reading and kind of keeping up with other countries, our geriatric colleagues have seen quite a, 
a lot of different ways that this can can affect people. Um, there seem to be a, obviously some can be asymptomatic even in older patients, and and they and some can be very mildly symptomatic. It's some get uh, the, the classic symptoms: cough, um, you know, fever, and possibly shortness of breath and tiredness are certainly very commonly commonly reported. There are some weird symptoms that are on the, on the list um, just to look out for. There's uh, muscle aches, which um, is a risk factor for, you know, the, the shortness of breath. So if, if there's a myalgia, just to be sure to be in touch with your, your doctor. Appetite loss, which is common to, to many, many viral infections, and, and our patients may drink less. So it's very important as one of the treatments to keep up with fluids. And there are certain medications that we sometimes recommend if you're older, that if you're not drinking or if you're just unwell, that you, you maybe omit sometimes uh, blood pressure pills, particularly those called ACE inhibitors, any water pills that you might be on. And if you take chronic anti-inflammatories for arthritis, then those are good pills to omit if you're unwell. But certainly you can discuss with your, with your GP. Mostly patients have a dry cough. However, some can cough up sputum. Uh, shortness of breath can occur, and, and that's definitely a, re- a reason to get in touch by telephone with your GP or I think even Hatsola has been doing a fantastic program with keeping keeping in touch with people at home. Um, loss of smell has been reported a lot in the lay press. Some patients don't even have any respiratory tract symptoms, but they come with tummy upset, nausea, and diarrhea. Some might have a classic headache, sore throat, runny nose, red eyes that, you know, you, you common with all these winter viruses. And then there are some weird rashes. You know, you might have read about COVID toe, which is weird sort of blue-looking marks that look like chillblains on your toes. Um, personally, I think COVID toes because none of us have had a pedicure for the last eight weeks. So <laughs> I've seen a lot of that. But yeah, in older okay. patients, in older patients specifically, um, you know, it may just be confusion, especially as I said, if brain is your weak link, you may come in with a fall or fainting. Maybe you've just feeling tired and you've lost appetite. Perhaps the gastrointestinal symptoms are more prominent. Maybe you've just deteriorated in function. So somebody who was sort of managing to get by independently suddenly isn't managing at all and, and family finds out that the fridge is got sort of food that's gone off in it and all sorts of things that they weren't, you know, keeping up with that they previously were. And obviously, I mean, these these can, can vary day to day. So unfortunately, the, the presentation in older patients can be very subtle and, and vague, and we have to just be quite vigilant, um, especially as doctors, that any change in somebody who's older uh, might be, you know, to consider this illness. Okay, and uh, so we've spoken about um, how they might present. So what's the procedure? What are you doing then if um, people go to their GPs or they go for screening tests? Is there anything else um, you're doing to investigate that's different at the moment? Look, you know, so there's, it depends. If it's a sort of person at home, um, we treat them a little bit differently to someone who's sick and coming into a hospital. Uh, so, you know, if you came into hospital at the moment, I think most hospitals are screening every patient that comes in the door. Um, in certainly in, in, in our sort of private setting, I'm not sure what's going on in the government hospitals. Um, I know that they've also got allocated so-called PUI wards. That's person under investigation. So those patients may get some blood tests and a chest X-ray. Um, and, uh, you know, those can give us some clues to the severity of the illness. 
somebody at home, I think probably easiest is to get in touch with your GP or something like Hatsola just to, to get some advice over the phone. So there are options to go for a test, and I think some laboratories have drive-through testing stations. Um, I certainly know of Ampath, and I, I think Lancet and, um, also has, has some sites where you can just literally drive into the parking lot in your car and fill in the forms in your car and get tested. Um, however, you know, obviously there is an option to not test because, you know, it's not if you're well enough to stay at home, it, it just means that and you isolated already, then it's not going to change much, although it is quite nice to know whether um, this is what you're dealing with or not. So once you've had the test, if it confirms it, then uh, the treatment depends a little bit on, on whether you are needing to go to hospital or to um, be managed at home. And a lot of the management, I think the GPs are doing an amazing job at trying to, to be in touch on the telephone. Um, and the advice really is is just kind of basic. So as I mentioned already, to, to keep hydrated is very important. Certain medications may not agree with with um, having an acute illness, so you might want to suspend some of them, but do that in discussion with your doctor. Uh, they're recommending to take Panado for fever and muscle pains over and above anti-inflammatories. Uh, it's controversial, but possibly things like ibuprofen might not be a good idea. You could try some throat lozenges, and there's a little bit of um, punting of zinc-containing throat lozenges. Some, Quite a few different preparations over the counter have a bit of zinc in them because that possibly can uh, inhibit the virus in your throat, and certainly if people find that they're more soothing. Definitely you need to have somebody checking on you. So this is really important. So either a family member or your GP, or I've mentioned before, Hatsol has got uh, an amazing program that they're doing, just Every single day, someone must phone and check on you, and you need to set that up. Um, there are some really nice things I've seen where it's uh, for people that are self-isolating in the community. Uh, if you're concerned about older patients and neighbors, perhaps, there's little um, little message slips that you can download that say, my name is this, I live at this place, my phone number is this, and I'm able to help you with X, Y, Z, groceries, phone calls, um, you know, anything, medication runs, that sort of thing. So if people are in the community and there's neighbors that they're worried about, I think that's quite a nice idea is just to slip a little that thing is really in nice. the door. Yeah, we, yeah, um, we don't know who's locked in, in Kilani. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, that's it. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, there are a so lot the, of people by themselves. For sure. So the phone calls and health checks and the social media has been really important in this. People checking on Facebook groups with other other people, you know, isolating at home with these. Um, it's quite important to change your position as well. So, you know, not to just lie in bed. That's never really good for you. So sit up, walk a bit. Um, you, you've read a lot about this proning. I think if you're short of breath and need to be, <laughs> you know, lying on your tummy, you probably should be in touch with your doctor about um, getting checked out. But, you know, it seems that changing your position can help the lungs open up a bit. So, you know, there's no reason not to sit up and, you know, walk a little bit at home, but obviously don't do major exercise. Um, and, and that's kind of the, you know, the treatments. You can certainly use home remedies, honey and lemon and those kind of things if you find them soothing. And it's really just frustrating and, and, and getting through it. Uh, there is a sort of down the line, I think there's some people saying there's a day five, six that sometimes can, you know, the can can have complications arising around then. So just it, it's a sort of a two-week illness 
Um, and just to be aware that if you've got someone you know that's at home and you are and you're worried about them, just to keep regular checks on them, even if they're three or four days down the line, because sometimes things can happen later on. Okay, so we've been made scared by the media, I guess, or um, about we've seen what's happened overseas, especially in Italy. You know, no beds for the elderly. Or, um, they don't do well on ventilators or one, ventilators or once sure. you're on a ventilator, you never ever, um, mm. come off. So do we know who's going to need a ventilator? Um, is it just, do we have any idea who's going to need a ventilator? And if they do need a ventilator, sure. what's usually the course of action? Yeah. So it's, I don't know if I know the answer to that, but certainly, you know, in geriatrics, our patients often don't do well on ventilators even before COVID. So, you know, for years we've been trying all sorts of um, lateral thinking measures to avoid ventilators and, and you know, sometimes um, our patients do better actually not going to ICU because it's a very confusing environment and a lot of medical interventions done with the best intentions can make older patients worse. So, you know, we've sort of been trying to avoid a lot of these things for a long time, but now all of a sudden everyone else is cottoning onto this. You know, what I've seen is that people, especially older people that, that go onto ventilators don't, don't do well. You know, it doesn't tend to end well. So we've been trying to avoid ventilators using all sorts of crafty Ways and means. So, um, like scuba I, diving you know, masks. Did you see those scuba diving masks that I people? Did, I didn't. I, uh, I didn't. But you know, so there's all used, sorts of tricks. They've so. used, yeah, they've instead of they ran out of CPAP masks. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, in so, Italy, so they yeah. converted uh, diving Gosh. masks with a filter. Wow, well, I'm I'm so, just picturing yeah. my confused older patient with a scuba diving mask on, yeah. wondering how that's going to go. I'll send you um, some but you. <laughs> But using um, so sort of high flow oxygen and non-invasive, we call ventilators, so that there's a high flow nasal cannula. And those things we've actually been using for a long time already. They're much more comfortable. Uh, we can deliver, you know, through nasal prongs. We're going up higher than we normally do with these type of things. I mentioned before positioning. So, you know, flipping people over onto their tummies, not so easy when you've got very arthritic shoulders, but certainly we can lean them forward over kind of um, those hospital trays and, and do kind of positioning tricks with the physios that hopefully can open up the lungs. Um, you know, some doctors have been managing a lot of patients in old age homes and perhaps it's the patient's wish not to go back to hospital and they've been doing the best they can and, and, and they've got some experience and some tricks and they've been actually, you know, managing to pull a lot of their patients through this. So, uh, I think that, you know, this thought that we're going to run out of ventilators, you know, ventilators is not really what, what saves patients from this illness. So I think, you know, if, if you're older and you think that you're going to be excluded from a ventilator, uh, you know, I don't know that a ventilator is, is the answer. Well, so, ventilators I mean, so bad. Why don't people, uh, why don't old people do well on ventilators? I, Sorry, I think all, old, all, 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 all people with COVID don't do well on people ventilators. And especially why don't elderly do well on ventilators? Look, uh, you know, I think, I think it's partly to do with, you know, the ventilator. I think the, the, the pressure itself, you, probably not asking the right doctor for all the details. My intensive care colleagues would be probably better to, to describe it, but actually pushing pressurized air into the lungs itself can cause damage. Um, and I think that the, the lung damage is quite unique in this illness. Um, it relates a lot to the blood flow in the lungs rather than, um, you know, the actual 
breathing part of the lungs. So it's, it's lots of, um, small clots inside the blood flow of the lungs. I think if you, it just means that you're at a more severe state, obviously. So, you know, the outcomes would be worse ventilator or not. But, um, older patients, you know, a lot of, it's to do with frailty. So, you know, if you're very frail and you're on a ventilator, then it's just another um, another thing that makes it trickier to bounce back from. So it's it's a lot of sev- severity of illness plus frailty is is harder for you to bounce back from. And you've seen some of these patients that unfortunately get very sick and are on ventilators and have a very prolonged stay that are not older that are young, and they come out looking very very frail. So. It really, I think that end of the spectrum does take its toll. But that's not going to be the majority of, of our older patients. You know, the majority are not going to be, you know, critically ill and on ventilators. You know, the, although the mortality is higher and the complications are higher, still the vast majority are going to recover if they get this illness. So, you know, I don't want to get too gloomy about it because part of it is moving away from calling it the COVID panic and, and keeping a clear head and, and being empowered to do things and, and get get through this and, and, you know, not just sitting in your home worrying about um, this illness coming to find you and knock on your door, you know. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, what have you been telling your patients? Um, have you been telling them to stay home, not to go to the shops? Um, sure. And so uh, my, only go out for necessities? Yeah, so my patients have been pretty good with that, I must say, although D-Day is kind of today when things are opening up. And, you know, obviously if, if it's an option to stay at home and if, if you've kind of managed to do it and you've got support that can help you with groceries and shopping and, you know, and, and you're okay at home and you've figured out how to do your exercise class on Zoom and um, you're getting enough uh, exposure to natural light because that's quite important. A lot of my patients have got uh, their sleep affected. Vitamin D because, uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, and melatonin as well. And, and vitamin D and melatonin are also, you know, part of the immune system. So I've been recommending to my patients definitely to have a little bit of a sun bath if they can, especially in the morning. That helps you sleep well at night. Um, obviously, you know, with a hat on, don't go and get sort of melanoma or something in your pursuit you know, of melatonin. I once, but, I, once told, I once told parents about um, a newborn to put him in the sun. He was looking a little bit yellow for jaundice. And, oh, okay. Uh, they sunburnt him, yeah. So I had oh, to be yeah. so, so, yeah, instructions after that. <laughs> uh, quite right. So, yeah, a little bit of sun, especially in the morning, just 15, 20 minutes. Um, I've kind of been actually supplementing vitamin D in my patients. Um, obviously, as prevention, probably it's not harmful would be to take something containing vitamin C and zinc. Um, it's obviously not proven to be particularly beneficial. Uh, I'd just be careful with vitamin C if you suffer from kidney stones and just be careful that you're not already dosing yourself with, yeah, with vitamin C and other medications because it's included in a lot of other multivitamins. So, you know, those, those things you can do. Um, obviously eating well, making sure you're getting enough fresh fruit and veggies and a good diet and, and continuing your exercise is very important. And either, you know, it could mean kind of doing a circuit of your house or being a bit creative about 
climbing stairs and that sort of thing in your bedroom. Otherwise, there are some really fantastic um, biokineticists and there's some adaptive yoga classes and all sorts of things that are happening on Zoom. Uh, you can also YouTube videos of things to do. Um, I think there's a Otago is a good name for a, a falls prevention program. There's quite a lot of videos on YouTube you can have a look at. So very important just just to keep um, to keep yourself going and to keep yourself healthy. So I've seen a lot of my patients that maybe were a little bit mildly cognitively impaired and and they were sort of coping with a little bit of input and now with the lockdown have have the wheels have fallen off a little bit in terms of how they're functioning so it's a bit of a double-edged sword but now with with opening of everything we've got to be sensible so if you are going to be going out and doing things you've got to be a little bit sensible about how you go about it and and you can consider three things about the activity so number one how risky is the activity? So things that are risky are things that where people are in very close contact with each other. So, for example, there was a big outbreak linked to a choir practice. So everyone in close contact and singing, so droplets flying, and that spurred a big outbreak. So that's the concern with religious services, and everyone's trying to figure out how how to get that going so it's safe. Um, obviously, if you're going to um, maybe hook up with your a friend or something, it's much safer to do it outside than to be in close confines and it's much safer to meet one person than five people, you know, those type of things. So consider what is the risk of the activity and are there things you can do to mitigate that risk. Then a second thing to consider is is what is the pooled risk of all the people. So if you're going to, and this applies a lot to my patients, so for example, they haven't seen their grandchildren for a very long time. If they're daughter's family has been self-isolating and working from home and keeping away, then actually probably it's it's a lower risk to, to go and meet with them than, for example, um, my family, which is two physicians that work in hospitals with COVID patients every single day, and we've been going to work every day. So, you know, probably our children's grandparents shouldn't come 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 too close to us. Then the, the third thing to consider is, is can you reduce the cumulative risk? And this is instead of going to the shops every single day, can you stretch it out and go once a fortnight or just be a little bit crafty about um, how many times you go somewhere and maybe the times that you go, possibly if early in the morning it's less busy in the shops or if some shops have a special time for pensioners, it might be worth taking advantage of that. And and that's just how we have to be sensible about things. Then, okay. of course, your own – yeah? Sorry, no, we're just going to take another quick ad break and sure. then we'll come back come back to your last point. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We're speaking to Dr. Inde Butler, specialist geriatrician, and we are speaking about uh, these challenging times, the COVID panic or pandemic and especially how it relates to the elderly. Uh, Dr. Butler, we're speaking about people going um, out, how to manage mm. uh, their risk. You're about to say your last... Um, yes, and oh, no, I was just going to talk about you know, our own use of uh, PPE, so personal protective equipment. So obviously everybody knows about using masks, but um, we can make a lot of mistakes with masks, and I think that wearing a mask badly might be a more risk to you than not wearing it at all. So very important that it covers your nose and your mouth and your chin. Um, don't pull it and you know wear it under your chin or on your forehead. Um, make sure that it stretches over all of those things. You can't have your nose sticking out, as tempting as it might be. 
Uh, also, don't fiddle with it. So touching the outside of the mask, you know, if there's any kind of germs on the outside is a risk. And if you take it off, you must try not to touch the outside. So you kind of take it off from behind your ears and then fold it with the, the outside now on the inside. And if you put it in a brown paper bag, um, and leave it overnight. You know, it seems that this, uh, that's quite a good way to store it and obviously wash them regularly as well. Um, the a problem a lot of my patients have is with their spectacles that get fogged up with the mask. And that's a, a challenging one to solve. I'm not sure anyone has the perfect solution, but it seems if you slide them down your nose a little bit and give a little bit more space between your face and your glasses, that can help. Yeah, um, what I've been, and, I've been advising if you, if your mask has one of those uh, on the top, one of those, uh, metal things, yes. things to pinch them otherwise to take a piece if you have some medical tape like micropore or transport and yeah put you a can do that your mask. just the so problem is obviously when you pull it off is you know first you don't pull off half your skin, skin and also yeah. don't fiddle with the outside to take the tape off but that's not a bad option as well um and then of course the most important in breaking the chain is is to wash your hands um and there's certain techniques on how to do it do it well and you can find those online it's actually quite a process and, and using sanitizer we all know about. It's quite nice to have a sort of station as you walk in your door of sanitizer. Um, and you can just do your hands as you walk in the door of your house. And I'd also recommend to do your phone and your keys because those can also be quite uh, germy. You know, when they've done studies doing cultures of people's phones and their keys, they find all sorts of bugs. So cleaning keys and phone as well as hands as you walk in your house. Um, and then, you know, once you're in your house, I think – you know, surfaces that are used often is a good idea, but washing, washing your groceries hasn't probably doesn't change very much. So, you know, I think it seems like it's unlikely to be a huge risk of catching this from objects and, and surfaces, except in very contaminated surfaces like, you know, outside, uh, very busy shops, for example, and um, hospitals, definitely, and, and homes where there might be someone affected that you're trying to isolate them. There, there you have to be a little bit more more cautious about cleaning surfaces and objects and things like that. But uh, that's it. If it makes you feel better to wash your groceries, then, you know, so be it. Sure. Can we go back and just touch on one of your points? I think it's mm. one of the hardest things for us has been separation of grandparents. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm a healthcare worker. And uh, going to the hospitals, what are, I mean is, are children still assumed to be spreaders? Would I mean I certainly wouldn't hug and kiss although close to my parents um, yeah. at the moment because I'm probably high risk. But what about I mean, for sure. example, what about my kids? What about kids in general? Yeah, you know that it keeps changing with kids, and I'm I'm not an expert, but it seems like although previously we assumed that they were part of you know possible super spreaders as they're called, but I think now it's it's looking like children are not. Firstly, they're not as big at risk for complications as much as, as adults are, and, and they're not really um, – they're probably not that infectious to others as well. Uh, the, the main problem with children is you can't get them to wear masks and wash their hands that much and cough into their elbow and, and socially distance and all of those things that we, we're trying to do. So, you know, it depends. As I said, if your family with the grandchildren has been, you know, staying at home and they haven't been at school and they've been self-isolating and, you know, that that would certainly be lower risk than your family, Dean, and my family to their grandparents. Um, you know, it's, and it seems like this is mostly spread by droplets. I mean, the aerosolizing story is, is controversial, but 
Um, and there haven't been a lot of cases or any cases as far as I know of, for example, you walking past someone on your morning walk in the street. It's, it's mainly to do with close contact, um, with other people, which is obviously something that you can do your best to avoid. And if you do have to get into close contact with other people, aside from, you know, your own household or obviously possibly, you know, socially distanced, well-behaved relatives, uh, you know, is try and limit the, the, the time that you spend there, the number of times you go in and also protect yourself as best you can. Okay. So, what are you telling your patients about exercising and walking outdoors? Are you happy for them to go for a walk? I, yeah, look, exercising is quite important for your health. Um, it's one of the most important components of aging well is, is physical exercise. And like I said, light exposure and sunlight exposure is also, turns out human beings can't really live very good lives locked in the dark, you know, so, it is very, very important, but obviously you've got to individualize um, the risk. And, and and some some of my patients have managed to bring their exercise regimes at home. If they're lucky enough to have space and outdoors that they can do it, then they're fortunate. But I would say, you know, a kind of morning walk with precautions put in is, is an option for our patients. Uh, the very frail and the very high risk will obviously – be a bit more cautious, but a healthy, robust, older person um, exercise is probably something that's important to you, and, and the risks of kind of walking past someone are, are fairly low. Okay, very good. Are you seeing a change in patterns of your patients coming to you? I mean, we're very quiet. I know most of our sure. uh, patients are, I think, for two reasons. One, uh, I think people aren't getting that sick uh, or getting yeah. sick with other illnesses now because they're not mixing and they're not... Sure. Kids aren't at yeah. school and, and people aren't socializing. So, I mean, it's worked. I saw a list of all the different childhood virus, yeah. the viruses, swabs that usually we see mm. the numbers compared to last year is much yeah. lower. And also, I think people are scared to go to the doctor. You're not going to go for, sure. or you'd be very quick to go before for something that was annoying you. Yeah. yeah. No, we're correct. changing our practices. I've also heard from the cardiologist that there's less heart attacks and they're not sure if it's just that nobody's sitting in the traffic and screaming at each other. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it seems like the, the, the rates are low, even if you include those. Um, look, my patients, are, there are a few less, but obviously um, some some of them, I think, because it's the only outing that they've been allowed to do, have been coming to see me. Um, and, and obviously certain problems you just can't really treat over the phone, you know, uniquely in our patients. A lot of my patients are cognitively impaired and not so good with the technology and some are hard of hearing. So that makes it very challenging to do any telemedicine. Um, so yeah, we have certainly been trying to avoid putting our patients in hospital because, um, coming to the rooms, I think is less of a risk than, you know, being admitted. And that's been quite interesting as an experiment to see what we can actually manage to do with uh, just a lot of close follow-up and, and maybe coming more frequently. So that's been quite interesting. But, you know, we've still been, you know, ticking along. And our, our very healthy, stable patients that are happy to talk over the phone or just postpone appointments, then, you know, that's that's fine. You know, we, we've obviously been doing that, but, but still seeing – fair number of our patients needing help and trying our best to help them in a way that doesn't put them at risk. Okay, we're going to take a final ad break and then we'll wrap up. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. 
Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday, a final few minutes. I'm your host, Ian Gerson, who's speaking to you, Dr. India Butler, specialist geriatrician at the Vitz Donald Gordon Medical Center. And we've been speaking about the elderly in general, but also um, with respect to coronavirus, how to stay safe, how to prevent, how to prevent contracting the virus, and uh, what to do if you're feeling unwell. Um, it's be, I mean, it's been nice because I feel like we've been just having a conversation that we would that we would uh, usually um, have around our, our tea and scones that we used to do every Thursday, which I like. Uh, I can't wait until we get back to doing that again. Um, mm. But what? what um, so where do you think from now? I mean, when do you think things will return to normal? Well, I think the thing, the hardest thing about this virus is being the unknown. Every time we think we know something, we think we know how it's going to behave. We yeah. think we know that a treatment is going mm. to work. There's conflicting evidence that uh, that comes out and shows that uh, this might be wrong or you might be wrong or um, yeah. we don't know. I mean, in your I mean, in your humble mm. opinion, personal opinion, what do you think? Where do you think we go? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think you have to ask the yeah. If, I mean, every time we see a new graph, a uh, few weeks later, it's, uh, it changes and it's it's as uh, Prof Karim said. You know, the response is sailing a ship while building it. I thought that was a very good way of That's putting it. That's quite a good uh, description, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, we we don't know. And we, you've just got to be flexible and keep up to date. And I think also what I've liked about the South African government's response is that, you know, President Ramaphosa says he admits mistakes, you know. He says, okay, that was the wrong decision. And you often they're making decisions with the information available at the time and that information can change in, in, in a heartbeat. But I did see some projections for Gauteng that we're going to get a surge sort of September, October, November, uh, which in a way at least we've had a chance to get a little bit of experience and learn from our colleagues in the Western Cape and our colleagues overseas in other countries and, and obviously take on that experience and, and also just to be flexible and be able to change the plan and change course as needed. And, and of course, you know, our patients must know that there's always, we will always, always care for them. You know, whatever version of this illness and wherever, whatever their wishes are and whatever's the best course of action, you know, we, we will always be able to care for them, of course. Um, whether it's in hospital or at home or whatever is required. And it's very much individualized down to the person, you know, their beliefs, their wishes, uh, how bad or mild the illness is and, and all of that. And the decisions must be taken on, on that sort of a basis. Okay. Um, last question, a bit, a bit general. Um, not so much to do with COVID. When, when would you suggest that an elderly patient comes in? And sees you at what step in the illness? Um, maybe they've got too many comorbidities or they feel that things are being overlooked. When do you think a person should phone you or do you generally take referrals from, from GPs who are overwhelmed or, um, other sure. physicians who are not, um, coping? You're talking generally in geriatrics? I'm saying general geriatrics because ah, okay. now at yeah. the end we're going to give you contact sure. details about, I mean, obviously ah. you don't want, you don't want a person who's 75 yeah. years old, otherwise yes. healthy has, uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, look, our, our, you know, our intervention, I think for us, we like patients to be referred by GPs. Um, firstly, because we believe strongly in, in GPs and, and, you know, if, if a GP refers you, it means you see your GP and follow up with them regularly. And, and that's quite an important first step. 
Um, we also, you know, because we're so few, uh, you know, I won't lie, it's the world's most unglamorous and unpopular field of medicine. <laughs> Can't understand why, but anyway, it's no, very hard worldwide to attract people to do geriatrics, um, except in Australia. I think it takes a bit. I think it, well, in Australia, yeah. really. Yeah, they're very, they changed the, the payment uh, model in Australia, so it's very well remunerated there. Right, so okay. they've got uh, they've got a waiting list of people. In well, line, I think but, you have to be, um, I mean, you probably won't like <laughs> us, but I think you have to be a very special, sensitive patient type of yeah, it uh, takes a, person. A, a, it's not a certain clever. type of, for sure, it takes a certain type of person. But we feel, uh, we are apparently the happiest and most fulfilled of all physicians. So, right. okay. um, yes, maybe. Um, so, yeah, look, I think a, a GP who's possibly overwhelmed by, you know, multiple comorbidities or if there's a certain problem that we specialize in, like I said, such as dementia or falls or one of the geriatric syndromes, um, those would be appropriate referrals. Um, there's what we're doing to try and train, you know, people is, is our, um, geriatric society, which is a national one, has has started a diploma in geriatric medicine, which which is aimed at GPs, but obviously any other medical doctors can 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 do it, and it's it's registered at the college. So, if you find yourself as a doctor seeing a lot of geriatric patients and feeling very overwhelmed, um, you know you're welcome to join in with our diploma, and we're probably going to look at how to reinstate our meetings that we have um, on an online virtual platform. So we can restart that training. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of older patients are, are quite well managed by their specialists and their teams and their GP already. And that maybe, you know, would not need our help. But if, if, if needed and if, if GPs out there are tearing out their hair and don't know what to do, then just, just get on the phone and, and certainly we'd have a sympathetic ear, even if we also can't. <laughs> Can't really do things, but uh, often just just kind of putting all the problems in context and listening to all the problems can also even be an intervention in itself. Amazing. Okay, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this past hour. Thank you, Dr. India Butler, specialist geriatrician at Fitzdonald Gordon Medical Center. Can you give your room's number? Please, uh, if uh, people need to get hold or make an appointment, or yeah, sure. So Donald Gordon has has a website, so you can see me there. Otherwise, my rooms is zero one one four eight two one nine five eight. And it's been nice talking to you, Dean. And look forward to scones and coffee in another era. In, in another day, era when the lockdown's over. Thank you, yeah. everyone, for joining us. Okay. Thanks again, Dr. Butler. We will see you next week.